Welcome back to the mini-series podcast of the Untold History of the United States with our guest and friend of the show, Professor Peter Kuznick of the American University. Thank you for being here. Glad to be with you. Today we will be covering the 1950s, the United States' involvement in developing nations, decolonization, and the Eisenhower administration. Did the United States help create a freer world? Was there greater peace in the world after World War II? Was communism America's greatest threat? These are the questions we will be addressing when uncovering an honest outlook of U.S. history. So, Professor, last time we spoke on the podcast, we talked about Truman's second administration as president. And towards the late 1940s, we could see that he, he became very unpopular. And so Dwight D. Eisenhower gets elected in a huge landslide in 1952, correct? Yes. After Truman fired MacArthur for MacArthur's provocative, outrageous behavior during the Korean War, Truman's popularity plummeted. It was down to 22%. The only one who's ever approached that since is George W. Bush. So Truman really was very, very unpopular. As somebody, one person commented at the time, never before has such an unpopular individual fired such a popular individual. So MacArthur was considered to be a hero and in fact, in New York City, 7.5 million people turned out for the ticker tape parade in honor of MacArthur. There were similar parades elsewhere. And we can get into some of the history of the Korean War. We can talk about why MacArthur's reputation was so undeserved at the time. But clearly, Truman was an unpopular figure by the time he was ousted from office in 1952. And what was Eisenhower's role in during World War II? Uh, Eisenhower was perhaps the most popular figure to emerge from the war. Eisenhower was uh, the, he led the operation in Northern Africa, even though he opposed it. He said that when we invaded North Africa, rather than open up the second front in Europe, this would be the blackest day in American history. He was clear about that, uh, but uh, he still comes out of the war as the number two military leader in the United States behind George Marshall and is considered to be a hero. In fact, both parties wanted him to run. It wasn't clear that he was a Republican coming out of the war. He described as he said he was a conservative, but a very, very liberal conservative. And it's interesting because Eisenhower not only opposed the use of atomic bombs in World War II, uh, after the war, he said that he was sure the US and the Russians were gonna maintain friendly relations until uh, the United States dropped the bombs. He was in Moscow when he got the word that Hiroshima had been eviscerated, and then he became very pessimistic. But he was very popular. He was the first American to actually view a parade in Red Square standing atop of Lenin's tomb. I, uh, Stalin had held him in very high regard. Eisenhower was close with Marshal Zhukov, the leading Soviet military figure. And uh, there was no, the, he was very confident. He said even that the US should turn over all its atomic bombs to the United Nations and the UN should destroy them. So Eisenhower at that period was like many soldiers very much aware of the horrors of war and very opposed to a militaristic attitude for the United States. 
And speaking of Moscow, in 1953, Joseph Stalin passed away. What was the political change in the USSR at that time, and how did that affect U.S. relations? Uh, the new Soviet leaders, led by Milenkov and Khrushchev, uh, extended an olive branch to the United States right after Stalin died on March 5th, 1953. And that was a chance to end the Cold War once and for all right then before it really got started. Uh, it was a great opportunity. And but uh, what happens is Eisenhower went silent for Eisenhower went silent for six weeks before he said anything. Then when he finally had a chance to respond, uh, his response was actually quite eye-opening in, in a positive way. Uh, it was uh, Dulles who actually uh, sabotaged that. Eisenhower says one of the most enlightened speeches of his or any other administration, he says, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is not a way of life at all. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. It's a great enlightened speech. I hope Joe Biden can make a speech like that uh, when, when he's in office. Uh, but then two days later, uh, Dulles sabotages that. First of all, when that Eisenhower's speech was applauded throughout the Soviet Union and throughout the world, it was reprinted widely in the Soviet Union. And two days later, uh, Dulles squelches this new spirit of, of friendly friendship and he accuses the communists of endless, endlessly conspiring to overthrow from within every genuinely free government in the world. Now you had two Dulles brothers in there. You had Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA. You had John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State. And sometimes John Foster Dulles and Eisenhower play this uh, good cop, bad cop routine, where Eisenhower would be the man of peace and Dulles would be the hardliner. Uh, but in reality, there was much less space between them during this time. And let's speak a bit about the Korean War because it's so important during the 1950s. Yes. Can you talk about the relationship that, I guess there are multiple state actors. There was China, there was uh, the USSR, and there was the US and the Korean Peninsula. So what was the objective for the United States in Korea? Well, we have to go back a little bit because uh, really the world starts to change in 1949. In 1949, we've got a communist revolution in China, followed in August of 49 by the Soviets testing their first atomic bomb. Uh, 
those two dealt a tremendous shock to the United States and its allies. The world seemed to be eluding their grasp. It seemed to be shifting toward the communist uh, perspective and the, the dynamism seemed to be on the communist side. Uh, also at this time, we've got the developments in uh, look like there are gonna be communist revolution potentially in other places. You've got the Hucks in the Philippines. You've got the Malaysians rebelling against British colonial rule. You've got the uprising in Indochina against French colonial rule in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. Uh, and so it looked like that entire part of the world could be going. And then the fear was if the US loses that region, then it's likely to lose Japan. Uh, so uh, what was, you've had this tension, the Korean Peninsula had been separated the 38th parallel after the war. In the South, the United States imposed Syngman Rhee, who was a very brutal, repressive dictator. In the North, the Soviets imposed uh, Kim Jong, Kim Jong, uh, Kim Il-sung. And Kim Il-sung had at least been a leader of the anti-Japanese resistance in Manchuria during the war. He was a more legitimate leader, but they were both very repressive in their own spheres. But the South was desperate. There had just been an election in 1950 in which Syngman Rhee's associates, his allies had been slaughtered in the, uh, in the elections. Uh, there was a lot of discontent, potential uprising in the South. And Syngman Rhee kept making threats that he was gonna militarily unite the Korean Peninsula. There were border skirmishes after border skirmishes, but Stalin now feeling he had the upper hand after the bomb test, after the Chinese revolution, after his military alliance with China, gave the okay to the North Koreans to invade South Korea. And that began, the invasion begins on June 24th, 1950. It, uh, they possibly believed that the U.S. would not respond because Dean Acheson, Secretary of State, or that may be an undersecretary of state, uh, made a speech explicitly defining Korea as outside the U.S. defense perimeter. The Joint Chiefs of Staff had said repeatedly that Korea was outside the U.S. defense perimeter. But what American leaders uh, believed at the time was that the only way they could actually reverse the series of losses in Asia at that point was to make a strong stand in, uh, in somewhere against the communists. And they chose Korea as the place to make that stand. Uh, they went through the United Nations. The United Nations had been, uh, the, uh, the United Ch Soviet Union, which had a, a veto in the Security Council, had been boycotting the United Nations over the UN refusal to see, to recognize and seat uh, China. And so they were not there to veto the measure to make this a police action led by the United Nations. It was really a US operation. The US provided more than 50% of the troops. The US provided the air cover and the other uh, military hardware for this operation. But the attitude, for example, John Foster Dulles 
had written in a memo a month before the war started. He said, the situation in Japan may become untenable and possibly that in the Philippines, Indonesia, where there's vast natural resources may be lost and the oil of the Middle East will be in jeopardy. None of these places provide holding grounds once the people feel that communism is the wave of the future. He said, this series of disasters can probably be prevented if at some doubtful point we quickly take a dramatic and strong stand that shows our confidence and resolution. Probably this series of disasters cannot be prevented in any other way. And so then the New York Times says we're in risk of losing half the world if Truman doesn't act decisively. Uh, Truman says if we let Korea down, the Soviets will keep right on going, swallow up one piece of Asia after another. And so uh, they decide to make their stand in Korea. So it's that kind of geopolitical situation that we're facing. So Stalin miscalculated to some extent. Uh, and, uh, and in some ways, the United States miscalculated also, although one might say in the long run, the United States probably uh, took the path that was in their its own best interest. But initially, the Soviet-backed and trained North Korean troops overwhelmed United Nations forces. And it was only when MacArthur made his uh, amphibious landing with 17,000 troops at Incheon behind communist lines that the tide of the war changed. Then MacArthur very aggressively continues pushing northward. The Chinese had made clear that if the UN forces led by the US got too close to the Chinese border, the Chinese would come into the war. It's, uh, and MacArthur poo-pooed that, said there's no way they're gonna come into the war Said that, and, and others believe the same thing, Atchison and others, they all discounted the Chinese threat. To back up a little, from the very beginning, MacArthur wanted to use uh, atomic bombs in uh, the Korean War. Truman had a very famous press conference in which he effectively says that atomic bombs are definitely on the table here. We definitely consider using them, uh, that the commander and the chief will have charge of the arsenal the U.S. gave lots of signals that it was open to using atomic bombs. And the Gallup poll in 1950 showed that by a 52 to 38 margin, the public supported using atomic bombs in Korea. So it was very close. MacArthur's threatening to use atomic bombs, but MacArthur, a couple of things happened. So MacArthur pushes up toward the Yalu River with American troops, even though he was told by the Joint Chiefs not to use American troops there. The Chinese defy the American predictions and the Chinese swarm into uh, over the border, hundreds of thousands into Korea and they pin the United States back on its ear. The Americans are thrown back on the defensive there and the uh, attitude was that this is uh, the worst defeat the US has suffered. Truman says, it looks like World War III is here. Omar Bradley, called it the greatest military disaster in the history of the United States. Time Magazine reports it's the worst defeat the US has ever suffered. They finally, the Americans are able to get a stalemate right around the 38th parallel where the whole thing began in the first place. But MacArthur was doing everything he could to sabotage the negotiations. MacArthur had promised an easy victory he said the fighting will be over by Thanksgiving and the American troops will be home by Christmas. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, and so in 1951, uh, he made a, uh, 
he, he basically undermined Truman's uh, attempt to get a ceasefire, and he gave his own ultimatums to China. And Truman uh, got furious. He said, "I'll show that son of a bitch who's boss," and he decided to fire MacArthur. And that's when the bottom fell out for Truman's popularity in the rest of his presidency. And MacArthur makes a speech and he, he cites the, uh, uh, the ballad. He says, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And then several recordings of the song, old soldiers never die, became a big hit. And, uh, uh, and MacArthur was enormously popular for a while. But then Omar Bradley and others say that He's, MacArthur wants to fight the wrong war at the wrong place at the wrong time with the, with the wrong enemy. And so, so uh, MacArthur's popularity fades. There's a misunderstanding in the US that Truman fired him because he wanted to use atomic weapons in Korea. That's not the truth. In fact, Truman replaced him with General Matthew Ridgway and Ridgway immediately requested 30, 38 atomic bombs to be used. Well, they didn't need atomic bombs in that war to totally obliterate and destroy North Korea or South Korea and North Korea. In fact, the British military yearbook for 1951, British Army yearbook for 51, said that not only was North Korea destroyed, but South Korea no longer exists as a country. The United States bombed massively, four times as many bombs as were dropped in the uh, in Japan in World War II, and every major city was leveled. It was devastating. Uh, people in North Korea and to some extent South Korea were living in caves. So the casualties were enormous. Somewhere between three and four million Koreans died out of a total population of 30 million, close to a million Chinese by some counts, uh, and uh, 30, I think it was 34,000 Americans died in the fighting. It was a horrible, devastating war in which the, pretty much all of Korea was burned to the ground. So, uh, and did it achieve anything? Well, not for the United States, clearly, not for the Soviet Union. China uh, is seen now as the one country that comes out of this in the strongest position because where the uh, Soviets did not get involved, the Chinese did and they showed that they could fight, that they were a formidable force. And so they come out of this looking good. The effects of it though, uh, as uh, Winston Churchill said, he said, uh, I said, the Korean war wasn't important. He said, I never even heard of the damn place until I was 74 years old. The significance is that it has now remilitarized the United States. So that was Churchill's attitude and it did. Before, uh, at the, on December 31st, 1949, George Kennan had resigned as head of the policy planning staff for the State Department. He was replaced by much more hardline Paul Nitze. And Nitze supported NSC 68, the National Security Council uh, memo, uh, uh, action memo 68, which basically called for a quadrupling of U.S. Uh, military spending. They wanted to uh, increase U.S. military spending from $13.5 billion to $48.2 billion. But the terms of this NS-68 are also pretty frightening. Basically, it said that we've got to treat, our, strategically view the world 
not based on what the Soviets were likely to do, but based on what they were capable of doing in a worst case scenario. So basically they said that any Soviet gain anywhere is a US loss anywhere. So now the entire world becomes our defense perimeter, our national security concern. So the US now has got to get involved everywhere in order to protect American interests anywhere. And so it's this, this hyper-militarization of US life. When they first proposed NSC 68 in early 1950, it was going nowhere. After the Korean War, that was America's new military policy. I wanted to cover a bit about the CIA's involvement in developing countries such as the Congo, uh, Indonesia, and East, also Iran. Can you explain why the U.S. was involved in these countries? Well, the U.S. was involved in these countries. I think I mentioned before George Kennan's secret memo from 1948, when he says we have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of his population. We cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. To do this, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality and daydreamings. We should cease to talk about vague and unreal objectives such as human rights, the raising of living standards and democratization. We're gonna have to deal in straight power concepts. The less we are then hampered by the idealistic slogans, the better. Well, the first test we get of this really is going to be in Iran. And in Iran, uh, you have to remember back that the United States uh, and a divided Roosevelt said to Lord Halifax that Iranian oil belongs to Britain, Saudi oil belongs to the United States and will divide up between us the Iraqi and Kuwaiti oil. Uh, so uh, our first real test of this comes in Iran. Uh, in Iran, the British Anglo-Iranian uh, oil company controlled Iran's oil and they gave almost nothing to the Iranians. The Iranians got 16 cents on the dollar of Iranian oil and they were furious. So when Saudi, when the, uh, the new oil deal was contracted with Saudi Arabia, it gave the Saudis 50% of the profits from Saudi oil. That just infuriated the Iranians. So the Iranians decided they were gonna nationalize the oil industry. They decided to compensate the British for their investment, but the British refused to accept compensation and said that this kind of nationalization of Iranian oil was illegitimate and not acceptable, which was a difficult position for Britain's labor government, given the fact that it itself had not that long ago nationalized British, Britain's coal and electricity companies and railroads. So, but they weren't gonna let the Iranians do that to the, the same thing. The head of the Iranian government was uh, Mohammad Mozadek. Mozadek was enormously popular. He was the first Iranian to get a doctor of law degrees from a Western university. In 1951, Time Magazine named Mozadek Iran's man of the year. Uh, so he was this larger than life figure throughout the, uh, Iran and throughout the Arab world. 
he was a rallying cry as an outspoken anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist. Uh, so it was going to be difficult to oust him in the kind of coup that was being planned that the British, British intelligence especially wanted. And initially, Truman was open to the idea, but then Truman backed off it. The U.S. ambassador reported to the United States that Mossadegh has the backing of 95 to 98 percent of the people in this country. So Iran was producing 40 percent of Middle Eastern oil at the time, and the British were desperate to get that oil back. Um, with uh, Churchill said that what's happening in Iran is much more important than what happened in Korea. But Truman was not willing to go along with these attempts to planning for a coup. So uh, once Eisenhower got in there, however, egged on by the Dulles brothers, they decided to plan the coup in Iran. And they called in Kermit Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's grandson. He was the CIA's top Middle East expert. And they wanted to get rid of that madman Mossadegh, as they called him. And they, uh, they, now they knew that Mossadegh was not a communist. They were afraid that, the, that he was moving closer and closer to the communist to that party. And so they decided to stage the coup. They called it Operation Ajax. And uh, they organized, they bought up the journalists, they bought up the, they brought up the army, the police officers, they brought up members of parliament. They had this extremist gang called Warriors of Islam, a terrorist gang that they bought up. And then they staged a coup. And they overthrew Mossadegh, who was convicted of treason and imprisoned. And they put back in power the Shah. The, uh, the Shah, who was very, very brutal, dictatorial, unlike Mossadegh, who was a popular Democrat, they replaced him with the brutal Shah. The Shah then, with U.S. help, installed Savak, uh, his uh, intelligence service, and they, the United States pours tens, hundreds of millions of dollars into the country, and they run this dictatorship that lasts until 1979. So for another 26 years, from 1953 to 1979. You wonder why the Iranians hate the United States? Well, this is where it starts a very popular democratic uh, leader overthrown by the CIA and replaced by the brutal Shah. Uh, and so it's not hard to understand why that happened. So the CIA toppled its first government, but coming off this success, the next year, the US topples the government in Guatemala. And what was the government in Guatemala doing? Guatemala was dominated by the uh, United Fruit Company, which controlled Guatemala's land, uh, about 90% uh, of the land that the United Fruit Company had down there. So uh, it, in all, United Fruit Company controlled about 20% of Guatemala's arable land, and 90% of that it was not even using. And so uh, the government of Guatemala decided to nationalize and repay United Fruit Company for the land that was not being used. Well, that was going too far to threaten America's private property down there. And so the CIA 
arranged for a coup in Guatemala. Uh, the United Fruit Company was very, very well connected to the US government. Just to run through some of the things people should know, Sullivan and Cromwell, which was the law firm that had been run by the Dulles brothers, had written United Fruits 1930 and 1936 agreements with Guatemala. Uh, Alan Dulles's predecessor at the CIA, uh, Walter Bedell Smith, uh, was, would become a vice president of the company in 1955. The Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, John Morris Cabot, was a major shareholder. His brother, Thomas Dudley Cabot, was the director of United Fruit Company. The National Security Council head, General Robert Cutler, had been chairman of the board. John J. McCloy was a board member, a former board member, and U.S. ambassador to Costa Rica, Robert Hill, would later join the board. So this company was very, very well connected to the U.S. government. So uh, Eisenhower uh, puts in a, a new ambassador to Guatemala, Jack Purifoy. Purifoy did not even speak Spanish. He knew nothing about Guatemala, but he'd been uh, in charge in Greece where he got the nickname the Butcher of Athens for his brutal repressive policy in overthrowing the popular uprising in, in Greece. His nickname was Pistol Packing Purifoy. And so he was in there. He went there and he uh, came down there and helped oversee this coup. Uh, and they said it was, of course, because the communists were taking over in Guatemala. The reality was that the communists held four out of the 56 seats in the Congress, no positions in the cabinet. About The party had about 4,000 members out of a population of 3.5 million members. The real, uh, the real crime was that they were trying to nationalize the land uh, and use it for the Guatemalan people. And this is a situation where 50% of the population controlled 3% of the land and 1% uh, or 2% of the population controlled 90% of the land. So it was a situation where these very, very wealthy landowners, Arbenz, the leader of the government, was not only very, very popular, very progressive, wanted reforms that were in the interests of the people, democratically elected, uh, but he saw what was happening and he, his final radio address to the nation as the insurgents were moving in on the Capitol. They said the United Fruit Company in collaboration with the governing circles of the United States is responsible for what is happening to us. He warned about 20 years of fascist bloody tyranny. And in reality, 100,000 more were killed. And it was not 20 years of fascist bloody tyranny imposed by the US. The government lasted for 40 years. It was just a horrific nightmare. And you wonder why people in Latin America hate the United States. You wonder why people in Iran hate the United States. Well, just look at what the US was doing against popular democratically elected governments that were trying to do something to help their own people. Professor, final question. So talking about all this, would you say that America's fight against communism was actually more a fight against the developing people of the world and trying to lift them out of poverty? Uh, to some extent, that's really true. But then it was also a fight against communism also because the communists 
are much more likely to be on the side of the revolutionary masses around the world. So it, it was actually both at the same time, but um, it was very much of a war of the first world against the third world, a war of the wealthy against the poor, a war of the powerful against the dispossessed uh, and try to maintain, as Kennan says, that position of disparity. How is the US with 6.3% of the world population gonna control 50% of the world's wealth only by means of violence, repression, intimidation, bullying, interventions, and slaughter. And that's what, that's what was happening in the world, sadly, during that time. And to a large extent, that's still what's happening in the world. Professor, it was a great pleasure having you. Thank you, Matt. It's a great pleasure being with you. Thank you for listening. The next time we come back, we will be talking about the beginning of the 1960s and the presidency of John F. Kennedy. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at McGill International Review for more up-to-date insight and analysis of global issues, international affairs.